All right. I am going to try not to wander off script now because we really need to wrap up by 10. I'm grateful to you guys. Two back-to-back sessions like this that goes this late at night can be challenging. Are your minds alert? You're here? You're ready? All right. I'm not going to ask you to set your alarms again because some of you are going to set it for 20 minutes. I'm going to know. Okay. So in the last session, we looked at Daniel 2 and the idea of times and seasons, trying to get some fresh understanding of that vocabulary. My goal for tonight is to try to create the sandbox, the framework around which the next two nights can build. I want to, when we agree on terminology and language, then we can go farther. Otherwise, we're using the same words, but we're applying different meanings And we need to be of one mind in these days. So we looked at Daniel as a prototype of this in terms of his influence in Babylon. I'm going to talk in this session about how David embodies the double shift of kings shifting history and revelation shifting history. And I'm going to give just a few minutes as a little interesting history lesson because there was a revelation era shift from bronze to iron. The Bronze Age to the Iron Age was a technological revolution for its time. After the Stone Age came the Bronze Age. In the Middle East and parts of Asia, the Bronze Age lasted from about 3300 to 1200 BC, about 2,000 years. For about 2,000 years, Mankind was limited to the use of bronze. Now, the interesting thing is iron ore is one of the most abundant and well-distributed natural resources on the planet. Iron was everywhere. It was in the Middle East. It was, it's around the world. Iron is a common resource. The problem is the knowledge to extract iron didn't exist. Bronze has a melting point, or sorry, bronze is an alloy of tin and copper. Tin melts really easily. Bronze melts at, I had to convert to Celsius here, sorry, copper. Tin and copper make bronze. Copper melts at about 1,085 degrees Celsius. Y'all are all Celsius people in here, aren't you? Right? Yeah. 1,085 Celsius, but the melting point of terrestrial iron is 1,538 degrees Celsius. So a knowledge gap of 500 degrees kept the earth in the Bronze Age for 2,000 years until someone somewhere started experimenting with adding carbon to coal and using a bellows furnace to get that extra 500 degrees. And when they crossed that threshold, then they could melt the iron ore out of the rock and they began to be able to fashion iron. Now you can imagine all the civilizations of the earth had been built upon bronze, established on bronze for 2,000 years. So the few early pioneers 
that figured out the 500 degree revelation gap started to dominate. And you see this in Scripture. Israel didn't have the technology. They didn't have the revelation. So you'll read in the days of Deborah when Sisera, the enemy general, had 900 iron chariots. He was just unstoppable because of his iron chariots. The Philistines were masters of iron. And in fact, there was a point in time where only Saul and Jonathan had an iron sword and the rest of Israel was still working with bronze. But the Philistines had iron. And so you put a bronze sword against an iron sword and the bronze sword bends or breaks. The iron pierces and cuts. So you have the advantage. You can imagine this is an early form of intellectual property and it was closely guarded. Iron smelting empires had the edge. Interestingly, the period between Saul and David falls into the transition from bronze to iron for Israel. Now, I'm going to hit pause on that. I'm going to add a couple things. But Israel learned to work iron during David's age, and thus it established its dominancy. But there are periods of history where dominion or the potential for advancement or movement will be necessarily limited by yesterday's revelation. Guess what made the difference? Now, Scripture doesn't spell this out, but if you read between the lines, it's very interesting there was a period of time in David's life that was the lowest period of his life. And he actually had to pretend, Saul was chasing him, he had to pretend to be mad. And what did he do? He went and hid among the Philistines at Ziklag for years. I think, if I'm remembering right, and that sounds long now, but what's in my head is 17 years. Must have been 17 months. I don't know. It was a long period of time. He was there for an extended period of time. Maybe it was seven years. He was at the lowest period of his life. Saul would not relent. And so David pretended to be mad and hid among the Philistines. And they said, he's crazy. He's no harm to us. Let him live with us. David comes out of that. And all of a sudden, Israel has iron. Guess what David probably brought with him? 500 degrees of revelation. Now let me say something pastoral to you. Some of your lowest points and your greatest struggles are bringing forth iron in your soul. In your worst points, you feel farther behind in your calling. You feel ashamed. You're going backwards, not forwards. God promised you the nations and you can't afford a car. All the promises don't seem like they're yes and amen. They seem like they're no and no way. You're discouraged and six months, maybe my forgetfulness is a point because maybe some of you have been in this seven months and some of you may have been in it 17 years. And you're like, I don't know when this is going to change. But there is actually things that you can do in that period. You can lay hold of the treasures of the secret place. 
You can hide in the shadow of the Almighty. You can run into the name of the Lord, which is a strong tower, and you can find safety in it. And there can be veins of revelation and understanding that when you come out of it, not only has your character been shaped, but you've got a hold of something that can cause you to burn 500 degrees hotter than you could before. And it's going to shift the next stage. And in fact, the next stage is waiting on your revelation to come forth. Well, in a sense, militarily, it was in Ziklag that the David movement began. Saul is still king. Saul is still ruling. But there in Ziklag, David got a vision for iron. And the David movement began. And he came out of it And men began to gather to him. And he became king of Judah and Benjamin and set up his temporary capital at Hebron. So David embodies the kingship transition, but he also embodies the revelation transition. Because not only did the kingship move from Saul to David, God changed the times and seasons, and it was evident in a regime change. Which, by the way, I'm not going to get to this because these are notes that I had to throw on the cutting floor, so I'm just going to throw in this one little nugget. We often talk about the sons of Issachar because they knew what to do. And we talk about the sons of Issachar as prophets and intercessors were the tribe of Issachar. We look to discern the times and seasons But if you look in, that chapter was all about the regime change. It comments all these different tribes were becoming loyal to David for various reasons, maybe political, maybe natural, maybe this, that, or the other. Issachar, it just specifies they made the decision because they understood it was the time. Issachar's discernment was related to understanding a king is shifting here. Therefore, we have to determine which king is God's man. So, it's not just a general sense. Part of what I want us to understand is we as intercessors and watchmen are meant to take data from natural circumstance, in particular, political movement, and in particular, revelation shifts. The technology age was a revelation shift. It's meant to be a signal to us. Why? Because Daniel said in the last days, knowledge will increase. I don't remember the latest statistic about knowledge essentially doubling every seven minutes. It's outrageous. As soon as a textbook is done at the college level, that semester it's outdated. Because knowledge is increasing so exponentially. You can't have a textbook that lasts 20 years like they used to. They last maybe two or three, and they're outdated for two of those three years. So the Saul movement is ending, and the tribes are coming to David, but that's not when the David movement began. The David movement began with a revelation shift. So there's the kingship that David embodies, moving from Saul to David to Solomon and and beyond. But there was a revelatory time that David lived in that he laid hold of in 500 degrees of knowledge related to iron. 
But then there's a personal revelation, and I don't want us to miss this either. 2 Samuel 5.12, it says, In this period of time, David realized that he was the king. It says, And when David knew that he was the king, and it hadn't actually completely been finished yet, but he realized he was in his time. His kingship moment had come. And it was actually critical for David to not only, he's not only in an empire shift that is historic at, in scope, he's not only in a revelation shift, moving 2,000 years of history into a new era, 500 degrees of heat, he personally has to get a revelation. David knew that he was king. Some of you in this room need to know in a fresh way, at another level, at a deeper level, I am a watchman for my nation. I am an intercessor for this mission. I am anointed with discernment or prophecy or a word of wisdom or dreams or whatever it is. There's a knowing that God wants to release to you so that you can begin to shape your future in God in a way that brings Him glory because He's getting the full, the full payment on His investment. He's getting all of the compound interest out of the time of your life. See, this is what, when, when Scripture says, redeem the time. We're to redeem the time. Jesus said, do business till I come. How do we do business? Redeem the time. What does redeem the time mean? It means to exchange time for purpose. When you redeem something, you're trading it in on the value. If I have a coupon for $20 off my oil change at Walmart, I take in that little piece of paper and it's worth nothing unless I exchange it at the right place in the right way. And I exchange it and I redeem it for $20 on my oil change. Well, you have a certain amount of years allotted to you. The Lord knows the number of your days and the way you redeem time to do business on the earth is to fully leverage that time for your purpose. And your purpose has to be found in His purpose, but His purpose will stall in you unless you have your own revelatory moment when David knew that he was king. You move in a certain way when you know that you're the king. I recently did my genealogy on Ancestry.com. Oh, I'm going on a rabbit trail here, but it's a good one. I did my genealogy. I just got engrossed in it for six weeks. Built my genealogy back to about 900 AD. Connect, I, my family line, I, my, on my mother and my father's side, we're just straight up UK. I'm British, Welsh, Scotch, Irish. I'm nothing but that. Except you go back far enough and there's a guy named Rollo the Viking. Rollo the Viking came across, touched down in what became Normandy, attacked Paris to get him to stop attacking them. They made a deal. They gave him, they made him a duke, gave him lands. That's why Normandy is the land of the Northmen, the Normans. And Rollo's great-grandson was William the Conqueror, established the Norman line of kings in England. 
So I found out, right? I found out I'm connected to Robert the Bruce in Scotland, and I'm connected to Rollo the Viking who established the Norman line of kings. And I don't know how to describe it to you, but secretly I walk into a room a little differently. I don't want to overstate this, but I came to take over. I'm sorry. No, but when, when you know, now, sons and daughters of the living God, what are you meant to know that causes you to pray a little different, that causes you to lay hold of your purpose a little different, that causes you to stand on the watch over your city or nation, not wondering who has the more authority in this situation. The secular rulers, the laws, the politics. You are not only the citizen of heaven, you're a son and a daughter of a living king, and you stand in your place with your head held just a little higher, a little greater understanding. No, it's not about pride and expecting others to serve. It actually empowers your service. It empowers you to take the towel and serve, but it empowers you to command heavenly places as well. Because it wasn't your idea to make you a son or a daughter of God. You didn't scrape your way into that position. You didn't earn it. Jesus said it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, little children. And when you pray this way, our Father, you aren't just, you are like unto Him. What a spot. It's not only his father. He said, I want you to think of my father the way I think of him. He's your father in the exact same way. All right. Bearing these things in mind. Oh, I got to finish one thing on David. So David discerned he was king for the people of Israel. He discerned the purpose of his reign. And every season in that way, has a purpose that must be discerned by mankind. It's why we're here. It's why you've come from the nations of the earth. Because there's a purpose that we're meant to discern in an era shift. All right, bearing these things in mind. Connecting to the first session. An appointed time is not a point on a calendar. It's not on this day. But it's rather the maturation of God's purpose. We have to shift our thinking. This is part of the software upgrade. We have to shift our thinking to a greater degree of ownership in our intercession. You are not waiting for times of fulfillment. You are fulfilling time. Part of the reason we have to understand the maturation of purpose is because otherwise we'll focus on the wrong thing. Let me give you an example. God judges the gods of Egypt. Yahweh judges the gods of Egypt. Mightily delivers a nation of several million. They come right to the boundaries of the promised land, which is what he promised Abraham, reestablished with Isaac and Jacob. And they went in and he was already saying, I'm going to bring you out again. He had already promised to do it. So now he's brought them to the border of the land he promised to Abraham and promised to them through Moses, renewing the promise. But the 12 spies come back. There's a bad report from 10 of them, and they don't go into the land. Now hold on. 
I thought the land was the point. So if the land's the point, then we're saying, God, just get us into the land. Get us into the land. That's what you promised. That's, how many times do we do that? God, that's what you promised. But we aren't realizing that the promise is connected to a purpose. And sometimes we don't look beyond the promise into the purpose. What God actually wanted was a people of faith. He wasn't just trying to get them into the land. If that was God's ultimate purpose, he could have ignored their faith. He could have brought them to Kadesh Barnea. The people respond in unbelief. He's like, I don't care because what I wanted was to get you into the land. No, what he wanted was for people to believe and trust. And so he said, we're going to wander a while. And that generation is going to have to die off because ultimately what I want is faith to take the land. And so God's purpose had to be matured through a generation that went deeper than the most superficial answer they could imagine to their prayer. God, get us into the land. We're going to get in when my purpose is fulfilled. You understand what I'm saying? Another example, why not send the Messiah right after Cain killed Abel? So we've got murder and bloodshed and sin. If restoring the created order and granting forgiveness of sin and releasing salvation is God's ultimate goal, he could have done it a long, long time ago. Apparently, salvation isn't the end of the story for him. He's not actually just trying to get people saved. That's barely the beginning. Discipling the nations is about bringing people where many passages of Scripture come at it from different ways, but essentially unto the fullness of Christ. So God could have wrapped this story up a long, long time ago with what we have made the sum total of the gospel, which is the gospel of salvation. Jesus came and said, I'm actually preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So the gospel of the kingdom must represent a different maturity of God's ultimate purpose, a different ripeness, a different sweetness. You'd bite into a banana when it's green, and it's not satisfying. It's not the banana you want. You need it to ripen further. And God is looking at history as something that needs to ripen to certain outcomes that He wants. And we are settling for the most superficial versions of those outcomes and praying into the most superficial versions of that when we need to be pressing toward the depths Laying hold of what the fullness of Christ looks like in my life, in your life, and in the nations of the earth. And we aren't going to settle for anything but that. There were five people that were blessed by that. <laughs> you can't even say that he just wanted a large family. Because he could have made 20 billion Adam and Eve's. Right? There's two, let's make two more, let's make a hundred thousand more. Got twenty billion Adam and Eves. I all screwed up, I come back quick. Boom, solve it, got my family. So it's not just a big family, it's not just salvation. 
It is everything about Christ manifested in complete and total fullness on the earth. Now, there are different eschatological systems that describe what's gonna, what it's going to take to get us there. I'm just telling you, ultimately, that's coming one way or the other. And I believe that the ecclesia is meant to believe for the highest threshold of that before the Lord's return. I want to put zero artificial limits on how far we can go in transforming the nations, in discipling people into the grace of God. I want to go all the way where as much as possible, earth feels like heaven. I already mentioned how this can help us make sense of hasten the day of his appearing. But I'm going to be a little stronger here with this statement. What if our ability to change time is actually part of no man knows the day or the hour? What if Jesus was honestly saying, we're going to see how you guys respond. It's not actually foreordained, perhaps, in the Father's heart, except for the degree of maturity that he expects to see. And that becomes the signal for the Lord's return, but that's not so much about the day on the calendar that's known in God's heart, but the outcome in his people that he is waiting for us to produce. What if God has sovereignly ordained that point as our high privilege that we would literally complete and redeem time to the degree that he says, okay, now I'm coming? What if the way we shape history is the welcome gift we give him when he returns? How do we know these times? Daniel said it was wisdom and might. I'm just going to say two quick things about that. Why wisdom and might? Wisdom without might would only bring guilt because you would be responsible but incapable. If you have wisdom to know what to do, but you don't have the might to do it, now with knowledge comes responsibility. You are condemned in your knowledge because you couldn't enforce what you knew. So you have to have wisdom. But might without wisdom would be dangerous. Because you would be powerful and foolish. So the level of shifting that occurs when kings change and eras change has to be welded together in the people of God by wisdom and might. We really are meant to know more than we know and we're meant to do more than we do. And I don't want to know without doing and I don't want to do without knowing. So what is God's answer to this? I'm glad you asked. Holy, got to get this going. Here we are. There, all right. Ephesians 1. I pray that a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God we pray for wisdom and revelation, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. So there's the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. And I'm just going to try to break this down a little bit so that we can, again, tease out phrases and get more understanding. The spirit of wisdom and revelation only comes from the knowledge of God, but it further produces. It's a virtuous circle. It comes from 
the Holy Spirit birthing something in you, opening your eyes to something that had, you had been blind to, and you understand God clearer than you had. Hopefully some of that is even happening tonight. A spirit of wisdom and revelation renewing your mind and enlarging your senses. The knowledge of God increases, but it also then continues to produce more wisdom and revelation. And I want to show you how that progresses, what a spirit of wisdom and revelation looks like. Is I'm putting it on this spectrum from darkness into light, moving through time as you grow, but not just in your natural knowledge, growing in a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So, study can cause you to accumulate facts. Facts are the most basic elements of knowledge. Facts are generally true-false. If I say 2 plus 2 equals 4, that is because you know what 2 is. You know what 2 plus 2. You have the basic pieces 4 and 2. There's a simplicity there. There's a basic, if I say the word yellow, you know what yellow is. If I say yellow is really green, you say, no, that's false. Yellow is yellow. So facts are simple things that we send our kids to school so that they can accumulate the building blocks of knowledge isn't so much about true or false. Knowledge is how facts assemble themselves. And you can either be shallow in your knowledge in a certain area or deep in your knowledge in a certain area, but it's actually the facts in relation to one another. So what is four? Four is not just a, 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 a statement of the number itself that's a fact. Four in relation to three and five is a positional statement that is assembling several data points of knowledge, of facts, into knowledge. What is yellow? What is blue? Okay, those are facts. What is green? Green is the combination of those things. And I could talk about the additive theory of color because I have knowledge. And that reveals why knowledge can either be shallow or deep. I just said the additive theory of color, and some of you may not know what that is because your knowledge of color might be shallow. I was an artist, and I had to study color theory so I gained knowledge that was deeper than many people's. I can talk about complementary colors, analogous colors, monochromatic, primary, secondary. We can go down the list. That represents a deeper knowledge than many who might just say, I like that color, it's beige. So knowledge, facts and knowledge, you can study and gain facts but it actually takes time to assemble facts into knowledge. That's why a high schooler has more than just facts. They have knowledge that has been gained over time. But you aren't yet in the realm of experience is another level that involves perception and comprehension. It actually takes the facts you've assembled, the knowledge you've gained over time... And when you move into the dimension of experience, now you can put those things together to decide what is true. See, a fact can be true or false, but that is not yet truth. It actually takes more 
more than study and time to know what is truth. Let me give you an illustration of this. The light shining on that object, depending on your perspective, and if you only saw the shadow, you would say, that's a square. And the other one would say, that's a square, a circle. And if you're only looking based on the facts of where you're seeing it, with limited experience, then you are going to state something that is true, but it's not the truth. And so experience allows us to get broader understanding because comprehension and perspective are added to the equation. This is why our children <laughs> don't always make the best decisions. And why we can say, you know what, I remember what it was like to be your age. And I know what you're thinking, and I know what you're tempted by here, but I'm telling you, this is going to lead to a bad outcome. But they have the facts, and they have knowledge. And that convinces them they know what's true. Meanwhile, you have a range of experience that gives you the big picture and you know what truth is. We are actually meant to have many experiences in God. And a great phrase to remember is, you can only possess what you experience. Now, some of you may realize I'm stealing from a musician named Charlie Peacock with that phrase. He had a song that stuck with me all my life. You can only possess what you experience. So sometimes we're trying to give a truth to someone that we ourselves haven't yet experienced. And then someone else comes along and gives them that same truth, but they receive it in a different way. Why? Because they possess something that you only know. Knowledge plus experience takes it to a deeper level, and now we become purveyors of truth, not just facts. You keep going and you begin to get understanding, which adds to truth, comprehension with insight. And finally, you move into the deeper levels of the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And you begin to get wisdom, which is application and fruitfulness. There are many of us in the church that are living at a teaching level that is primarily truth-based. It hasn't yet added understanding, and it may actually lack wisdom. And we can't go to the next level unless we engage in this cycle and ask the Lord for a spirit of wisdom and revelation that accelerates, because we're going to need wisdom like never before in the days ahead. We have got to be a people of understanding. We have got to be a people of wisdom. We are meant, like Daniel, to stand before kings with the mind of God. But we're arguing over lesser things that are true, but may not even have entered the realm of truth, much less understanding or wisdom. Why does this matter? I'm gonna, I'll just leave that up there. You can turn to Ephesians 1. A spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God so that what? 
We're going to look at a number of these phrases. It's just loaded. Where am I here? Ephesians 1.17, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what? The hope with which he called you. Now that's going back to David. What is the thing you're supposed to know about your place on the earth? About your calling, your commission, your sphere of authority, your burden, your oracle, your discernment. What are you meant to carry? If you aren't growing in a spirit of wisdom and revelation, you may be carrying it at a lesser level with less stature or less authority or less influence than he actually wants to deposit into your hands. You've got to know the hope of his calling in you. And the riches... Of his glorious inheritance. You know what a glorious inheritance is? Number one, it's glorious. But an inheritance is something that you receive at the end of a certain period of time. Now God is saying, at the end of time, he wants an inheritance in you. Can you imagine that God considers you his inheritance? God who needs nothing says, I will be a richer man at the end of time for what they bring into my world. That means what he's put in you is meant to be fully capitalized on so that you can be as much of a wealth contributor to his inheritance as possible. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the workings of his might. All of that is actually Paul responding out of what came earlier where in verse 9, he said that God has made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. I said redeeming time is exchanging time for purpose, and there's a darkness in the future that we are meant to know. He says His mystery is a will, but the, His will is a mystery, but it can be known. You're meant to know the mystery of His will. You're meant to know His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. And it's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. The New American Standard says the administration of the fullness of time. You know what? In America, when the president comes in, he has his administration. He has his cabinet, his council. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to execute the president's agenda. So what is the administration of time when all of these resources are invested in you if you aren't the administrator of time? He's actually administrating time through you when we come to know his will, we redeem time for purpose, we grow in the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him so that we can understand the hope of our calling. And when I'm faithful to that, when I know what that is, and I lay hold of it in full, he says it's gonna, at the end of the age there's going to be 30, 60, 100 fold. Guess what one I want to be? I want to redeem my time on earth a hundredfold so that when I stand before him, he says, well done. Enter into the joy of your master. You just increase the value of my kingdom a hundredfold out of what I put in your hands. I don't want to stand before him and have him say, now listen, on that day, I'm going to be happy with whatever. Thirtyfold? Wow! 
that's amazing. Thank you. Yes. But in this life is when I get to decide what that looks like. It's how I make my investment for his investment in me to be fully realized. Oh, we're coming down to the wire. And I'm going to make it. Maybe. Very quickly, a friend of mine, Chris Berglund, had a dream. He's been a prophet to Lou Engle for 38 years. And he is the preeminent dreamer of our community. And his track record, we just know when Berglund has a dream, we're meant to get it. And we were doing a fast in Colorado Springs for 21 days. Chris and I had a dream on the same night about the power of the cross. I might tell mine tomorrow. But Chris's dream was he saw a crossword puzzle. Now, this is dream interpretation for dummies. A crossword puzzle. Except if you didn't see the puzzle, y'all know what a crossword is. He didn't see the puzzle. He saw when you flip to the back, you see the answers. And so it was 6, 8, 10, and 12, but it was both across and down. Well, that's interesting because the answers, that makes a cross, right? If it's, okay, get it? Okay. So 6, 8, 10, across and down, all of them formed a cross, and it was a crossword puzzle, and the puzzle was giving us the answers. And so the answers... Six was Joshua, eight was Hezekiah, ten was Mary, and twelve was blank, but he understood that twelve was to be filled in by us. Twelve was us. And the name of the crossword puzzle was Those Who Change Times and Seasons. And the answers that we were given was Joshua, Hezekiah, Mary, and then us. Now, the fact that 12 was us is us moving into new levels of apostolic authority as the government of Christ, which is really what the ecclesia is about more than church. What did Joshua do? There was a battle with the Amorites, and he said, God, halt the sun in the sky. And the sun halted in the sky. He literally stopped time. He affected time. Hezekiah, near the end of his reign, prayed for an extension of his life. The prophet came and said, Do you want the shadow on the steps on the sundial to go forward ten steps or backward ten steps? Hezekiah thought, Well, if it moves forward, that's how time normally goes. Move the shadow back. And the shadow moved back. Hezekiah moved time. Mary, in two ways, mother of Jesus, wedding of Cana, Jesus says, it's not my time. Mary says, yes, it is. <laughs> and Jesus accelerated the time of his ministry. Not to mention, all of time is divided by Mary saying, be it unto me according to your will. And we moved from B.C. to A.D. Because Mary changed time. And this is this great and remarkable privilege that number 12 says us. What if we have looked at certain things like 
death and time with a materialist, secular, unbelieving heart that says those are forces and powers beyond our control. And part of the maturing and ripeness of history is for us to realize that God made Adam Lord of all creation and even the laws of physics bow to the power of God at work in us. Jesus says to the storm, be still. It's still. He says to the tree, you'll never produce fruit again. It withers and dies. He takes some pots of water and says, serve up the wine. And we look at Jesus and say, he's the son of God. Philippians 2 says, he emptied himself of his right to use God's resources, to his divinity for those miracles. But instead made himself thoroughly human. And Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man. Son of Man. And this is what it looks like when a Son of Man is fully surrendered to God. The laws of physics bow. Time itself bows. Stand up. 1 Corinthians 2. There's a wisdom of the age of the rulers of this age that is doomed to pass away. Paul said, we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Say, my glory. He's talking about you. None of the rulers of the age understood it. No eye has seen nor ear heard, nor... The heart of man has ever imagined what God has prepared. That means everything, every way I've stretched your imagination tonight is still too small. We still aren't believing big enough. It goes beyond just bending time and stopping the sun. What is the last days going to require? What are the exploits? What are the miracles? What are the deeds of daring and heroism, and sacrifice, and martyrdom. These things, though, no eye has seen nor ear heard, and it's beyond imagination, and yet it says these things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. That makes the ecclesia the delegated keepers of times and seasons. The rulers of the age, they don't understand it. They're constantly working against it, to hinder it, to thwart it, to stall it. But God is producing something in you. You are actually here right now because God's producing something in you. If you were a bank account, your interest rate just went from 2% to 20% because he's maximizing his return on the investment of his anointing in your life. You're going to leave with a different sense of responsibility, a different sense of your privilege, which means you're going to redeem your time for a different level of purpose. Let's just open our hands and heart. I'm going to be brief because we need to close. In the name of Jesus, I decree and declare over your life that you are moving into your next era. And you are growing as watchmen, intercessors, prophets, seers, apostles, discerners, pastors, fellow laborers, evangelists,